You know, I know what every screw nail costs, how to get this thing up and running, how to do it remotely out of town. I, you know, I built hundreds of properties in my underwear at my kitchen table, it, you know, with my kid on my lap. So nice. I show you how to really tap into this thing and get that the financial freedom, you know, that a lot of us are, are truly looking for where we can uh, spend time with our families and build wealth. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Brian Grimes. And today you're going to learn about how he takes old properties that need a lot of work, guts them out, and turns them into affordable housing for his tenants and passive cash flow for himself and his investors. Brian invests remotely in other markets and takes properties that, again, need a lot of work, fixes them up, and turns them into assets that the community needs, preserving the character and the quality of the neighborhoods while providing housing for more tenants. We're digging into so much about this strategy, how he finds the properties, potential pitfalls or risks or things that you might think about when you think about affordable housing and fixing properties up, creating affordable housing for tenants, potential problems that might come along the way. We talk about how he mitigates those risks and how he's dealt with them in his business. A lot of great content in this one. He's done over 300 of these properties. Really incredible. That's quite a bit of deal flow. And he's in a number of markets on the East Coast. Very impressive stuff. And today we're taking a deep dive into his business. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more, just go to investwithtaylor.com, schedule a call with me, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. That is the best way to help us grow here at the show because that helps other people learn about the show. That helps them escape the Wall Street casino. They see your comments. They think, hey, this person learned something from the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Maybe I can learn something too. And you know, I, I see your comments. I see that you're learning with us. You're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. And I appreciate that so, so much. Gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling every single time. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll catch every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Once again, our guest today is Brian Grimes. We're digging into his strategy, his business, creating affordable housing for his tenants in C-class neighborhoods and creating passive cash flow for himself. Very impressive stuff. Without any further ado, here we go. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do in real estate and how you run your business? It's a big question. Yeah. You know, what I do in a nutshell, I, I'm somebody who, I mean, we've all heard of like gentrification and some people, you know, love it. If, the, if you're like a house flipper, some people, if you're more focused in on like community development, you, you kind of hate that word. It's a, it's a dirty word. Mm -hmm. What I do is, is dentrification. So I add density to C-class <laughs> neighborhoods, to different communities, right? So I go into some of these older properties that are a hundred years old, right? Some of our major cities were built in like 1910, 1915. Mm -hmm. And I full gut renovate these properties and add density into these properties. So I rebuild them as co-living units, which will be like, think about it like a three bed, one bath. I would blow it up and make it into 
a three bed, three bath. Each um, bathroom is only accessible through one of the bedrooms. So three master suites and rent those out. And it creates density. It uh, rehabs communities, restores community pride and creates massive amounts of cash flow. So it's been a a win-win for the community, for the business, uh, for the contractors. So that's pretty much what I spend my time doing these days. I love that. And there's a lot of conversation, especially within this topic, when you talk about gentrification, all this kinds of thing. There's a lot of talk about housing affordability. And you mentioned uh, our city's kind of being built uh, over 100 years ago, designed 100 years ago. And they weren't designed for our current population, which is significantly more, but that gets us into supply and demand type of issues where our supply hasn't kept up with the demand. Sounds like you're going after addressing that supply issue and dentrifying. I, I love that. I love that term. So you're you're going right after that and, and providing more use a case, I suppose, or use potential to existing properties. Is that right? Yeah, just just unpacking that a bit. Sure. The way that we live is different. Like I have a, a architect buddy of mine, great family up in New York. He designs uh, office buildings. And we would go out to uh, lunch and he would just say, Brian, like the way that some of these architects are designing these new offices is just outdated. People don't even use the office space like this anymore. So his uh, claim to fame per se is he goes in and he redesigns these offices for like startups and how people use it today. And when we were talking about this, I took that concept and wanted to apply it to residential real estate. So you think about like a a typical starter home, three bed, one bath, there's a living room, dining room, kitchen. People don't even eat together anymore. If you have your kids, they want to put stuff their face in an iPad. Like they don't want to see you and, and eat dinner half of the time. So you have all this space that is livable, but it's not really usable. There are better ways to use the traditional asset to meet the need, especially of Gen Z and millennials uh, who are out there who are working class and living differently. We also have millions of Americans when we talk about, you know, the affordable housing crisis and what's the solution to that. I mean, you have uh, the Section 8 for the people that qualify for that. And then there's, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people on the waiting list who can't get in. You have low income housing tax credits for whoever qualifies for that. And then you have millions and millions of Americans that are sleeping on their parents' couch in the basement or in the bedroom that they grew up in because they can't afford it. They can't afford $1,200, $1,300 a month and they don't qualify for any of the subsidies, right? Or they're on the waiting list and they can't get in. So creating this new type of housing where you tap into co-living in the affordable housing space, you can create a product where somebody can get their own bedroom, bathroom type of studio living where they share a kitchen area. And trust me, millennials and Gen Zers, they don't cook. They're not Chef Ramsay. They're ordering off Seamless <laughs> Grubhub. You know, they're doing that anyway, right? So they're sharing this common area, but they get their own space. Uh, they don't have to share a bathroom with anyone. Utilities are included and they're paying $700, $750 a month. So this is giving the Uber driver an opportunity to have their own space and some some uh, financial independence. And it's just a different experience. So I found it to be the true solution to the affordable housing crisis that no one's talking about. And by the way, you're t- taking a three bed, one bath that would rent for twelve fifty a month and turning it into an asset that would rent for twenty two fifty a month. So a thousand dollar increase per month on your cash flow doesn't hurt anybody either. Nice. I like that. And you know, you're making a, a good case here for or a good a good strategy to address a big problem, if we're honest, it is a big problem, but also a good opportunity as an investor to increase that cash flow. Now, one of the things we talked about 
before we started recording was basically just the cost of this business. So there's a big thought process out there that, you know, hey, housing affordable, affordable housing, excuse me, is great, but things cost money, right? Rehabbing a property, building a property costs a lot of money. And the rents that a quote affordable housing unit will generate, just the math doesn't work out. It's too expensive to rehab something that's, you know, in desperate need of rehab. And it's not going to rent for enough for that to make sense. So the math doesn't check out, but you've addressed that in your business. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I I like to operate in what I call the developer spread. So (laughs) I was watching something recently. This is kind of a side story, but um, there was a guy doing an interview and they they said, well, what are investors who are cash flow investors doing wrong? He said, "Um, they're they're buying in their backyard. (laughs) What should they be doing? Buying where properties cash flow. And it's so it's so uh, such an obvious thing that people kind of miss out on it. Investing out of town uh, can be a, 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 a way that people can tap into more cash flow, learning how to do this remotely, learning how to tap into today's technology. It's a big part of what I do. Uh, if I've built uh, over 300 properties and I have over 295 of those have been completely out of town, at least two state lines away using technology, boots on the grounds and, and the different systems and smartphones and cameras and just remote management systems that are available to us today. Why wouldn't you use them? In 1980, it didn't exist. People couldn't use it. This is your advantage today. So part of my um, business and my model is about investing where properties cash flow. Now, back to operating within a developer spread, what does that mean? It means I'm going to the auctions. I'm dealing with wholesalers. I'm going direct to consumer. I might even pull a property off the MLS, but I'm in neighborhoods and pockets where I'm on the cusp of the gentrification. So I can go and see comps that are selling for 250, 260 for uh, 1200 square foot, three bed, one bath. And I might go a half mile out from there, knowing that I can pull comps within a one mile, you know, one square mile radius. So I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path. I'm going to buy properties in shell condition, pretty much almost tear down condition for 20, 30, $40,000 knowing that I'll have a $200,000 spread between the acquisition and the after repair value price. Now, as I have my construction teams and my process and my systems and my warehouse and some of the uh, systems that I've built over the years together, I know that I can rehab any of these properties for $100,000, $125,000. So even though it's a, a big renovation budget, I'm operating within that $200,000 spread. So if I can buy it for 30, put in 110, 115, and refinance out on a $250,000 ARV, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to make some cash flow because my rent's $2,250. It's going to cover the note, put some cash flow in my pocket. And I'm going to watch rents repeat and recycle that capital and keep running. So that's what I do. If my market dries up, I pack it up. I go to the next market where the property's cash flow. Nice. Okay. So we find ourselves in interesting economic times, right? Interest rates are going up. And in my estimation, I think that's probably going to continue into the future as long as inflation is raging. And materials costs are pretty much higher than they've ever been. Labor costs are continuing to go up and availability is incredibly low for all of these things. How has that impacted your strategy? And and you know, has it made the numbers more difficult? The numbers are the numbers are definitely in flux, I'll say. So 
while these things are happening, we do have some macro things like material costs, but that's a, a flux. You know, it's it's up now. Um, we certainly have some some global wars going on and trade wars and different things that that'll stabilize over the course of time and return back to the, the mean. Um, labor is pretty liquid, so it can go up, it can go down. And that depends on, you know, if you have an in-house team or not. And, you know, inventory, housing prices, those are fluctuating. Right now, we're seeing more inventory hitting the market, which is softening prices. Rates are up, definitely. And that has an impact on cash flow. And that's why you need a strategy like co-living, where you can get more uh, juice per squeeze, right? You need something that can increase your cash flow. You can't just go and grab a property at the top of the market with a with a house hack and FHA it, slap mm-hmm. in some Section 8 tenants and make cash flow anymore. It's not that easy right now. Now, will rates continue to go up? It depends. I mean, we're dealing with a a new market, right? We've never increased interest rates at a time where our debt level was this high. True. We also have a population that is the oldest it's ever been. In the 80s, we didn't have all the boomers and everybody that we have now at this current age. They can't, you can't handle those uh, interest rate hikes on a fixed income. So will they continue to hike like we've seen in history? It's doubtful to me. While it's happening in the in the short run, I'd expect some type of a pullback within even the next six to 12 months, believe it or not. And that's a that's me being a, a counter uh, investor. But that's what I am. That's why I'm in the C-class neighborhoods buying, you know, properties for pennies on the dollar when most people would uh, run away from that type of action. I, I kind of uh, look into the future and, and weigh some of these things a bit differently, mm-hmm. but it's paid out for me, you know, over the course of time. So I, I'd say there is a lot of opportunity. Um, while the market is shifting, you have to understand that real estate is local. It's super local. It's micro local, right? So a lot of what you will hear on the news is about the four fifths. This is about the regular consumer and it's national. So nationally, uh, prices are falling and the four fifths would just be mom and pop who are buying a home to live in. Only one fifth of acquisitions nationally are by investors. And that includes like the Black Rocks and the big investment companies, right? So the news is for the four-fifths. They're trying to get as many clicks as possible. They're not necessarily talking to us. If you're in a local market in the Northeast, pricing may be pretty stable. If you're out in California, San Francisco, Boise, Idaho, parts of Florida, your 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 real estate is 50% overvalued and it's going to collapse. It's going to crash. So you would want to wait that out. And while you're waiting, look at some of the markets that are a bit more stable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot there. I suppose I would follow up with my comment about interest rates in the future. I totally agree with everything you said about the aging population, our current debt load. The reason that drives me to lean the direction that I lean with, assuming that rates will continue to go up, is I see that as the more conservative conservative assumption. So that's what kind of tips the scales for me. But I, I agree that rates returning to a level where they were in, say, the 1980s, where people were getting mortgages at 10% or whatever, even higher. I don't see how that is anything but a disaster for the economy. Yeah. yeah and and no one has a... It, while while it could happen, right, the, the Fed does not necessarily have an interest in collapsing the housing market. I mean, it, it, if you think about what is real estate, and I had this conversation with my brother, what's real estate? Everything, right? There's only real estate and tech. 
And the tech businesses typically serve the real estate business, uh, <laughs> some type of physical brick and mortar. Hey, we'll bring you more customers, more clients. There's tech and there's real estate. So there's not necessarily this vested interest there. And also in the 80s, when people were buying these properties, you're buying them for 30, 40,000. You can put a 10% note on a $30,000 property. You can't put that on a $300,000 you know, property. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. But like, one thing that you are saying is that we all need to think about if you're right, which you could be, and I could be completely wrong, right? America may be becoming a renter's nation. And we're seeing renters nations in places like, you know, London, Japan. If you go globally, there are places where people can't afford housing and the affordability is based on a price, uh, a P.E. ratio, right? Price to earnings. Typically, that number is a six or seven X P.E. ratio. Once you, let's say the median income is fifty thousand dollars in whatever area you live in. Once houses go over 300,000 to 350,000, it becomes unaffordable for the average American. Once housing becomes unaffordable for the average American, you start to trend towards becoming a renter's nation. And there are places in California, in New York, where 80% of the population within complete zip codes or boroughs rent. So we do have little areas of the country right now that are renter areas and we could become a renter's nation. You, you really don't know. But if that is the scenario, I think you would want to be a landlord and kind of get into the game, you know, now while you still can uh, before you miss out on it. Absolutely. And I think the I think we may well be trending in that direction. A lot of I'm glad you brought up places like Europe, which have much lower rates of home ownership than the United States, the whole idea of the American dream, I think is still there. People still want that, but we have, you know, different market dynamics and this is all kind of, it's hard to escape the the realities of, of all the regulations in places like California and New York. And that's something that I wanted to drive to here is, you know, talking about dentrification, uh, I <laughs> yeah. the exact time I'm going to screw it up, but <laughs> you're effectively changing the function, the character of the properties that you're buying. And some of the stakeholders who always want to stand athwart that are zoning, permitting, you know, local governments want to say, you want to add two bathrooms to this house? I don't think so, buddy. How do you get around that and deal with, you know, frankly, the bureaucrats who could not possibly care less if you succeed at the business? How, how do you handle that? You, you play by the rules, right? So believe it or not, the, a lot of the rules that were put in place against um, housing. If if you go into the zoning code, and I'm like a I'm a real estate nerd, so I'll read through the zoning code until I understand it as good as my uh, zoning attorney. Um, if you go into the code, there's always going to be in whatever city you're in, municipality, something that says no more than X amount of people not related by blood can live here, and that number in uh, Baltimore is four, in Philly is three, in parts wow. of uh, Atlanta or Flo Florida is six. So depending on where it is, you need to just play by the rules. There's nothing that will prevent you from building a master suite, right? You've seen it in a lot of new, you know, flippable homes where there's a, a big bedroom for the parents and they, they have their own private uh, entrance to the bathroom. So you're playing within the rules. That, and that's what I recommend is learn the rules and play within them. We're not, we're not going to go in a place like Philly that allows for three people non-related by blood to and then try to rent the four. Like you just don't want to do that. Now you're, you're a rooming house. Now you're dealing with uh, the city or you can't evict. And you just have to invest the time to learn the rules, get a good architect, get a zoning attorney, 
and have your eviction attorney. And you just want to bring the minds together. Like you don't, when you get to the level that I operate at, you will know as much as all these people individually anyway. And it'll just be a, a cross check. But when you're just getting started, bring your eviction attorney in with your architect, with your zoning attorney. Let them all sit in a room and say, what can I do? You show tell him what I can do. Can you defend this to the zoning board? Yes. There's nothing wrong with it. Can you evict somebody? Yes. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's go. You know, that's that's the game plan, which is can I build it and can I monetize it and can I defend it? And once the answer is yes, 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 you have a green light for cash flow. Okay. So the other aspect here is timing, timing to get permits, to get, you know, municipalities say, yes, you can do this, you know, just to issue construction permits and all those kinds of things. And I think we, in some areas we've seen, like, I think in California and maybe LA, we've seen some adoption of this idea that zoning needs to allow for more density. You know, we need to allow for more duplexes, more ADUs, all those kinds of things. Are you seeing the any shifts on the East Coast to make this more viable as a business? I guess obviously it's viable because it's working for you, but but any shifts in a positive direction that will allow, say, maybe the rest of us to engage in this space? I think in the Northeast, it's kind of, you know, there are a lot of cities and they're very well packed, right? So there's no, there's no headwind in the Northeast. It's really just, it's doable. You just have to know what the rules and regulations are in your specific uh, municipality and you can go right ahead and start building it. There aren't a ton of people doing it. There isn't pushback on it because it's it's at a micro level. Like we're starting to see, and I'm not like a, a diehard airbnb but there are airbnb out there who just got beat over the head in like Atlanta yeah. where they just shut it down. But that happens in places. I've seen that happen in Philly. I've seen that happen in, in New York. You know, that's going to happen because... That's more short-term living. The government, at least at this moment, they're not really against if you create some type of a co-living space and everybody's on a 12-month lease. It's really the turnover and the drama of the neighborhood. Um, People are doing Airbnb, they're having parties and doing different things, and it's creating drama for the community versus you going in and helping three like-minded people who uh, one drives Uber, one drives for uh, Amazon, and, and one's a nurse to pool their money, live together comfortably uh, within the, the current zoning and housing regulations in a single family you know, residence or even within different units in a multifamily residence. Uh, it's just, you know, it's the way to go. And I think they'll have some problems fighting that because they would have to go in and change their zoning laws. And then it's almost impossible to, to police at that point because it's not, it, you're talking about three people living together. It could be two buddies. It could be I mean, how are you going to how are you going to go against that? Can now uh, college kids can't live together now in the student housing (laughs) market? Like, how do you really police three people deciding that they want to live together under one lease, under one roof? It it becomes exponentially difficult. It's not the same thing uh, as you would see with like Airbnb. I think you're right about the all the drama with Airbnb and short term rentals. Plus, you didn't uh, mention, but I'm sure you're you know, you agree that. You know, it goes against what the hotel's interests are and they heavily yeah. lobby, you know, municipalities and hey, I've used Airbnbs up and down, but I don't want one next to me. I mean, I'll I'll sign I'll agree on that every day, but I love using them. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, you know, the hotels got hit hard, right? They didn't really care about Airbnb until COVID hit and they got shut down and the Airbnbs really didn't. Um, so coming out of COVID 
they need to recoup some of those losses. And the way to recoup a lot of those losses is, is to kill the Airbnb business. So you're going to see a lot more of that, you know, nationally, as far as I'm concerned. Atlanta was just the first, one of the first uh, major stones to drop. But you're going to see it a lot. So it's, it's to me, not a viable business model that I would tap into be just because of, you know, what can happen. And you have big money who is paying politicians, you know, going against you. So <laughs> it's just not a, a good business model. But co-living, especially in the affordable housing space, it's it's a solution to the, the affordable housing crisis that we have in America. I mean, you're truly helping families. You're helping uh, young people to get started. You're helping people who are retiring. Like I have some some uh, co-living properties where everybody's in their 60s and they're downsized and they just want to live with other people. They don't want to go to a, like an old folks home. They're very independent. They want to live with like, I have like one one uh, woman's house. It's like everybody's 60. All women, we try to keep everybody kind of together uh, so they're comfortable and um, they love it. I mean, they, they've downsized and they're like, man, I wouldn't even be able to live uh, on my own and here and like this uh, without this opportunity. So it's definitely something where you can rebuild communities, help people and make a lot of cash flow. So if that resonates with you, it's definitely something you want to get into. Love it. So before we move on to the last part of the show, just want to ask if folks want to get into this business or they want to learn more, what would you say is the best resource or maybe the best place for, for them to go to take those next steps? I would say my platform, like, you know, I put together the 24 seven cash flow university for people who want to tap in, who want to go from zero to 60 and learn how to do several things. One is invest out of town, put your money where properties cash flow, do this remotely, do this the right way with the the burst strategy, buy very low and get tapped into different lenders that'll give you 100% of the money to acquire and rehab these properties and then learn from all of my mistakes. I mean, you know, I started off getting burned for $40,000 by a, a G- GC Ooh. and then, then waking up and saying, oh man, I got to figure this out or I'm going to be out of business. 300 full gut renovations later, you know, I know what every screw nail costs, how to get this thing up and running, how to do it remotely out of town. Uh, you know, I've built hundreds of properties in my underwear, at my kitchen table, it, you know, with my kid on my lap. So nice. I show you how to really tap into this thing and get that the financial freedom, you know, that a lot of us are, are truly looking for where we can uh, spend time with our families and build wealth. So I would recommend tapping in, you know, finding me on, on YouTube, Brian Loves Cashflow on YouTube, Facebook, Brian Grimes, you know, LinkedIn. You can get a hold of me pretty easily. Nice. Awesome. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Brian, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Love it. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I would say the best investment I ever made was probably my first property, my FHA house hack. Barely had any money, working 100% commission, got a deal, $130,000 duplex with a, a basement unit that I was going to live in. 
And I ended up putting down, long story short, $7,000 to acquire this property and rented it out for about $1,000 a month in positive cash flow. Um, so got all my money back in seven months and was making money, you know, off of it ever since. Still, still had that property to this day. Nice. That's awesome. Awesome deal. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. So when, when you're scaling up, sometimes you start running really fast. Like I did 153 full gut renovations in, in 2019. Wow. And when you're doing that many deals, you're running a little too fast. Something's going to break and you're going to need to rebuild a system. So one property we purchased, this actually happened twice over the course of my career, but one was purchased and it's almost a tear down and it essentially just fell down. So um, that property uh, collapsed and it, it turned into a land lot. We ended up doing a ground up deal on it. But that was like a, a deal where it was sa- it was saved and it was salvaged. I mean, I bought it for so low that I, I could have been buying just, you know, a pile of dirt. But um, that's something where as you're getting super aggressive on your renovation, sometimes these properties just aren't even stable enough to, uh, to rehab. So there are definitely systems that I teach my people about how to inspect properties and how to do things. But I'm a, I'm a school of hard knocks guy. So sometimes <laughs> I like to get out there and rough it up and and, uh, you know, learn the hard way. Wow. That definitely sounds like learning the hard way. You said it, it, it yeah. collapsed. Did that kind of happen all at once or maybe it was just falling over and it was just, hey, we just got to knock this over? Yeah, it, it happened like kind of the back of the house collapsed, like back inside of the house. And then mm-hmm. it was just like, this thing's got to go. We got we got to take this thing down. There's no saving it. Wow. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Um, just to be to be cautiously fearless. So don't don't wait to be ready. A lot of us sit back and we say, oh, I'll be ready. But we know that we're just afraid to get in. Like we're, we're what you have to understand is you're never going to not be afraid. My my best deal that I told you about was also my scariest deal. My FHA house hack where I made all that money, I was horrified. All I did was get the keys, paint the walls, sweep the floors, hand it over to the tenant and start collecting cash flow. Completely petrified, right? Was not ready. <laughs> Didn't know. I knew less than 1% of what I know today. And I was horrified. But that should tell you, you're going to be scared, even if it's your best or easiest deal. If it's your first deal, you're going to be horrified. So don't wait to feel ready or not afraid. Being afraid is part of being cautiously fearless. That's part of the caution. If you weren't afraid at all, you you wouldn't even have a pulse. There would be something wrong with you because you didn't understand the risk you were actually taking. So that's be, being cautious, but also fearless. Go into it, go through it. Because just like learning how to ride a bike the first time, you just need to get those pedals around a couple of times, get those feet pumping. And before you know it, you'll be like putting your feet on the handlebars with your, your hands behind your head and, and doing this thing. Nice. I love it. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing so many great lessons with our listeners. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to track you down on the internet, we kind of already went over that, but we'll do it one more time. Where can they find you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Quickly again on uh, YouTube, Brian loves cash flow. And it's easy to remember because I love cash flow, right? Brian loves cash flow on YouTube. Facebook, you can find me, Brian Grimes. Uh, Instagram, you can find me. And I put a lot of content there. Brian Grimes underscore 247 CFU for Cashflow University. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Brian Grimes Real Estate. Uh, You'll find me on LinkedIn. 
I also have a free training for you guys if you want to tap in. It's on www.workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow, workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. And you can, if you hit any of those resources, you can backlink and tap into the free training, get a hold of me, shoot me a text, talk about real estate. You know, I want you guys to get after this thing. Note that's work with Brian Grimes, not Grimes, Elon's ex. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful with that. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. If you don't mind, you guys, I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.